Hey, my name is Kyle. I'm the pastor here at Regeneration, and I'm super glad to have you here. Thanks for coming out tonight. Um, there's something about that song that we sang that um, if you've not yet stepped across the line of faith, and even if you have, uh, much of that song sounds uh, insane, uh, and it borders on stupid, right? Uh, it doesn't matter what I feel. It doesn't matter what I see. My hope will always be your promises to me. And when we're saying your promises, we're talking about a person that we've never seen nor perhaps even heard audibly, whose promises are written in a book that was put together over a period of a few thousand years, uh, 2,000 years ago, and we are saying, regardless of how I feel in whatever circumstance I'm in, regardless of uh, how the circumstance looks to me, I'm going to place my hope in promises written in a book that's 2,000 years old from somebody that I've never seen, but that's the way of Jesus. Um, and the way of Jesus interrupts us with love and grace and helps us, frankly, to see uh, things with a fresh perspective. And that's really what we're excited about here at Regen is having a clear uh, vision and a grow ever-growing, more clear vision of who Jesus is. Uh, and so our hope tonight, the reason that some of us show up early, the reason some of us stay late, the reason that we do stuff throughout the week is so that we would have a clearer vision of who Jesus is tonight. And that's what we get really passionate about as a community. Part of following Jesus means being generous. And so every month, we choose one thing that we can do to help people know the love and grace of Jesus, something that we can interrupt the, love and, the people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus with. And so this month, uh, we're partnering with the Alliance for Substance Abuse Prevention for their annual uh, Rally for Recovery, which is on Saturday, September 24th. Uh, it is from 11 to 2, and at 11, there is always a walk that's about a mile through Perkins Park downtown uh, as we kind of commemorate and give name to people who uh, are in our lives and in the lives of our friends who are walking through addiction. Um, somehow I got wrapped into kind of doing a, a memorial uh, and giving some words right at 11 before we walk. Um, the Alliance for Substance Abuse Prevention is doing really tremendous work uh, in our community to help us think about addiction differently, to celebrate what recovery is. And so what we'll do is we'll, we're gonna build a walking team, we're gonna go, we're gonna walk, and then we're gonna give out Regen swag, which is super fun. So last year we gave away um, pairs of sunglasses, uh, like with the Regen logo, and it was like people had never seen a pair of sunglasses before. Uh, they were, it was super fun, and, and actually the sunglasses held up really well, because I still have mine. Um, so uh, it was really fun to like be at, at the AMP downtown uh, and be seeing like all of these people wearing green Regen sunglasses. It was super fun. So we'll be there again. Uh, we'll be putting more info about that on our Facebook page and in the reconnect email. Um, if you've not signed up for the weekly email or you have and you're not getting it or you want it, um, those cards at the back that say, hey, just write on your email on the back of that and just say like, get me on the email list. Every Wednesday or Thursday, we send out an email that just kind of reconnects us to what's going on at Regen throughout the week. And uh, so we'll be sharing details about the September 1 thing uh, as we get closer. Um, we're in the book of James tonight. We're in James chapter 4, verse 11, all the way through James chapter 5, verse 6. So at Regen, we do this thing with the Bible where we kind of treat it like Netflix uh, or Amazon Prime right now. Steph and I are binge watching season 5 of Suits. Um, and so tonight we're going to focus our attention to binge watch a little bit more of the book of James. And uh, 
I'm excited about that. Uh, there's going to be text on the screen, and if you're using the Bible app, that's a great way to see it, because I'm actually going to be preaching out, a different, out of a different version than that's underneath you. Sometimes you can grab those blue paperback ones. Those are ours. Uh, but we're preaching out of the message tonight. As Zach and I have been working, we're working through the text last week. Two weeks ago, I preached in the message, which is a translation of the Bible, and uh, we're doing that again tonight. So I think it'll be fun. So let's pray and uh, see what happens. Hey, Jesus, uh, you have interrupted us in a way that we uh, cannot forget or easily escape. And so now we want to live a life of interruption where our motives and our hearts are constantly being retooled to be in line with you and where we're consistently and lovingly and graciously telling our friends that we've been interrupted and we want them to be interrupted too. Uh, Jesus, we know that when we come to you, you're not exactly, uh, you're not safe. You're not cordial. You're not even always possessing the best manners. And yet you come to us and you kick in the door like the Kool-Aid man and uh, help us see you in different ways. So help us do that tonight. Help us to have a better glimpse of you as we uh, deal with our arrogance and our pride. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's this irony to our lives where what we most often despise in others is what we truly and secretly despise in ourselves. This is more than just like Freudian stuff. It's just true that when there's somebody in my life that I'm annoyed by their boisterousness or their anxiety or their arrogance, it's probably because it reminds me of my own boisterousness and anxiety and arrogance. There's something about other people in our lives and their hangups and hurts and habits that are sometimes too clear, uh, too perfect a mirror for what's going on inside of me. And so often I've been developing this habit over the last few years that when I find somebody annoying, I try to do some self-reflection to see if what I find annoying in them is ultimately what I find annoying in me. C.S. Lewis uh, writing about in particular pride and humility, he says, there's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault of which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The more we have anxiety or shame or arrogance or pride, the more untrustworthy we are, the more likely we are to despise that in other people. And so I'm reminded then of Zach's three fingers of death. If you were with us last week, Zach and I co-taught out of James 4. And one of the things he pointed out was that when you're pointing to someone else, there's actually those three fingers pointing back at you, which I think is something my grandma used to tell me. But, but the truth of the matter is when I'm pointing to a character flaw in someone else, there are three whole fingers pointing back, telling me that it's probably something inside of me too. And so in James 4, 1 through 10, which is where we were last week, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, James wanted us to see that there is something fundamentally incorrect and wrong and fractured about our hearts and our desires. So wrong that even our best motives deserve second guessing. Uh, our hearts, we learned, are like a compass, and our compass needs some maintenance because it's always pointing to these true norths that upon inspection aren't actually true norths. And so James identified the problem as pride or arrogance and showed us that by naming, by noticing and naming, by practicing humility and repentance, we can live uh, into the way of Jesus, we can align our hearts with Jesus's, and we can follow him 
and have relationships that maybe might be marked with less conflict. Repentance is how we name our wrong motives and begin to live in a more heavenward direction. It's also the word that we paint on signs when we protest. But that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, We're not talking about repent. We're talking about repentance, this act of getting our hearts aligned with Jesus. And so James, as he's trying to help us do this, is going to point out in chapter 4, verse 11, all the way through chapter 5, verse 6, three places where our hearts get out of whack. Three places where our arrogance and pride are likely to flare up. And he wants to show us how dangerous these forms of pride and arrogance are, and he wants to then point us to a new and better way. Last week, as I've been saying, Zach and I co-taught James 4, 1 through 10, which I really liked doing, and so I wanted to co-teach again this week. Uh, This week, though, my co-teacher is someone who is dead. Uh, His name is C.S. Lewis, an author in the 20th century. It's easier to co-teach with someone who's dead because they don't have as much to say. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, And... uh, C.S. Lewis is going to be my silent partner tonight, so I want to kind of introduce you to to him today. Um, C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis. How's that for a middle name? Staples. Do you think that's where the paper company got their name? He was born in 1898 to his parents, Albert and Florence, and was easily, far and away, one of the tallest intellectual giants of the 20th century. Uh, arguably one of the most influential writers of the 1900s. He was a fellow and tutor in English literature at Oxford University until 1954 when he was unanimously elected to the chair of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University, which is a position he held until his retirement. I mean, this guy was a smart dude, but he was also a guy that really wanted nothing to do with Jesus. For most of his early life, C.S. Lewis, though raised in a Christian home, uh, his grandparents were deeply involved in church. His grandfather was a minister. He was deeply, deeply opposed to Christianity and by the age of 15 declared himself to be an atheist, which is just not something that you did, you know, in, you know, the first half of the the 20th century in England. It just wasn't proper. You know what I'm saying? Um, The Dowager Countess would not like it. And so, he, he declares himself an atheist, but then along his journey, uh, the writings of an author named George MacDonald, uh, his friendship with a guy that you may have heard of, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote a little book called The Lord of the Rings, NBD, uh, and also some exposure to G.K. Chesterton, uh, caused Lewis to relent of his atheism maybe a little bit by force. Uh, Listen to what he writes about the moment that he stepped across the line of faith. He would actually say that he didn't step across the line, he was dragged across the line of faith. He says this, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. And so in the term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility, which will accept a convert even on such terms, He says, the prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, 
But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? He says the words compelle intrare, they're Latin. Compel them to come in have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them, but properly properly understood, they plumb the depth of divine mercy. He says this, something fascinating. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. Lewis uh, is dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom and was welcomed into it because of what he calls the divine humility, which will accept a convert even on those kinds of terms. And so humility becomes for Lewis a key theme in scripture and a key theme of his writings, mostly because prior to his conversion and then well after, Lewis was kind of a jerk. Uh, He was smart. If you walked into a room with Lewis, he was smarter than anybody in that room and he knew it, which kind of made him a little smarmy. You know what I mean? And so he wrestles with humility largely in his writings. And so we're going to kind of be going back and forth between James and Lewis a lot tonight. But the question should be, what's the problem with pride? What's the problem with pride aside from it's obnoxious? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, prideful people are just annoying. People that walk into a room and act like they own it are annoying. Uh, And this is why we don't like pride. This is why we don't like Gaston from The Beauty and the Beast. Right, because even if like no one fights like Gaston and douses lights like Gaston and blah, 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 like Gaston, we don't have to like him. And we have plenty of Gastons in our life, right? We have plenty of people that have puffy chests and think that they're amazing and good looking and all of these things. But annoyance with arrogant people is not even getting close to the root of the problem. What is the root problem with pride? Lewis says this, he says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride then leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride, Lewis says, is the cause of every other vice. Pride, he says, is the anti-God state of mind. And so, if there is any pride in us, I mean, if we're talking about a little tiny weed of pride in my soul's garden, James says we need to rip that sucker out as fast as it possibly possibly can, lest it take over. And he says some of us have been so given over to pride that we now need to go to war against the pride in our hearts. And I'm going to assume, and I think you ought to assume, that even if you don't think of yourself as prideful, you are. Steph showed me today, somebody posted on Facebook, a guy said, one of her friends said, somebody just told me today that his biggest gift is pride. I mean, no, his biggest gift is humility. At which point I don't think you're humble. (laughs) Yeah, dot, dot, dot. I don't think, you can acknowledge yourself as the most humble man ever uh, and still retain that status. And so we're gonna learn how to go to war tonight. James is gonna show us three different ways that we display our arrogance and three areas we need to go to war when it comes to how we talk, when it comes to our plans, and when it comes to spending money. 
So let's look at James chapter four, verses 11 and 12, and let's get into it. James says this in verses 11 and 12. He says, don't badmouth each other, friends, because it's God's word, it's his message, his royal rule that takes a beating in that kind of talk. You're supposed to be honoring the message, not writing graffiti all over it. God is in charge of deciding human destiny. Who do you think you are to meddle in the destiny of others? Uh, By the way, James is going to get very real tonight. I keep looking for the nice version of the Bible, uh, and it's not anywhere to be found. Uh, It's about to get more intense and more intense and more intense. The first form of pride, James says, is found in how we address one another. That when I badmouth somebody, that is a show of my arrogance. If I badmouth Mitch or I badmouth Jenna, I'm showing my arrogance. And maybe these verses could have been attached a little bit to last week's sermon, which was all about conflict and humility. But I think James takes a run at this idea of speaking. I mean, and by the way, if you've been with us through James, there's also a part of you that's like, James, can we please stop talking to me about how I talk to people? It's just getting a little too real. You know, like you're a little too up in my grill. Uh, and, and what James says, but he takes this other run at it. And he says, when we badmouth one another, when we slander or gossip, when we assume the worst, when we jump to conclusions, that the person you speak badly about isn't the only victim. If I speak badly about Jenna or speak badly about Mitch, Mitch and Jenna aren't the only victims. James says the ultimate victim is God's word. James says ultimately the victim is the royal law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that they are the ones that take the beating. This not only raises the stakes on our talk, but it helps us see why people far from Jesus have no interest in him. Because here's the deal. Do you remember when Danny preached and he said that uh, you might be the only Bible your non-Christian friends read? Well, if the Bible of your life that they're reading is all the terrible things that you have to say about other people, of course they're not going to be interested in Jesus. Because what you've done is write graffiti all over the very foundation of your faith. You've tagged it. I mean, imagine... I said this in, my, in the morning campus where it's a little more of a church place. I mean, imagine if you had walked in tonight and the building was tagged. Or worse, imagine that when we came in, all of the Bibles had their pages ripped out and they were just strewn all over the floor. I mean, I grew up in Sunday school, guys. Like, that makes me nervous to even think about it. Like, am I even allowed to talk about this? I don't know. But when I badmouth somebody, that's essentially what I'm doing. I'm tagging the church. I'm ripping the pages out of the Bible. I mean, that's what we're doing. When we badmouth other people, the primary victim is not even the person I'm talking about. It's ultimately God's word. And this is why this is arrogance. In the, in the New Living Translation, James ties this to judging other people. That's why the message says, you know, who are you to decide someone's destiny? Because when I badmouth somebody, if I were to badmouth Mitch, oh, I can't believe he did this, this, and this. I have now set myself over Mitch as judge and jury of his behavior or his motives or his actions or his ideas. And when I go up, when I move myself into a position that I'm not supposed to be, that is arrogance. It is arrogance that has me saying, I know the best. This is why James has a problem with it. This is the first source of our arrogance. The second form of our arrogance is in making what James would call selfish plans. If you look at verse 13 through 17, they're going to be on the screen. It says this. He says, now I have a word for you who brashly announce today at the latest or tomorrow, we're off to such and such a city for the year. We're going to start a business and make a lot of money. James says, you don't know the first thing about tomorrow. 
You're nothing but a wisp of fog, catching a brief bit of sun before disappearing. Instead, make it a habit to say, if the master wills it and we're still alive, we'll do this or that. As it is, you're full of your grandiose selves. All such vaunting self-importance is evil. In fact, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, that for you is evil. In these verses, James has in mind traveling merchants, which I know just strikes right at the core of who we are as a church. We're a church of traveling merchants. So super applicable, you know what I mean? I'm just kidding. Uh, Guys, you need to laugh at me. I need a little bit of affirmation tonight, so... So there were these traveling merchants in the first century uh, who would move from city to city for one basic purpose, money. I mean, the economy of the Greco-Roman world in the back half of the first century AD is blowing up and trade is going everywhere. And so there was a lot of money to be made if we went and moved to Thessalonica and bought a whole bunch of pottery and sold it and bought and traded that for a year and a half and then moved on to Rome and then moved on to Cappadocia and then moved on to here. And so there were these traveling merchants that would just kind of pick up one day and say, hey, today, maybe tomorrow at the latest, we're gonna sell everything. We're gonna have a going out of business sale. We're gonna move the family across the ocean and we're gonna do this. We're gonna make lots and lots of money. And so they would set out and they'd say to their friends, hey, I'm out of here. And James' problem with this is twofold. First, James says that we ignore, when, we, when they were making plans like that, and when we make plans like this, we're ignoring our actual status in the world. Because what does James say our role in the world is? It says that you are nothing but a wisp of fog, catching a brief bit of sun before disappearing. I feel like this summer has been a foggy summer, um, or at the very least, I drive Levitt Road, which is like... This, if you go down this way and then there's the intersection, if you turn right, that's Levitt Road. Levitt Road is where all the fog in Trumbull County hangs out. It is just a party place for fog. And, uh, but you know what's interesting about fog? I don't know if you've noticed this. When the sun comes out, it goes away. A particularly strong breeze pushes it out of the way. And James says, functionally in the world, you and I are nothing more than fog. So who are we to say about where we're going to go tomorrow? Because we're a mist, we're a vapor, we're a breath, we're nothing. He says, not only do we forget our status in the world, we forget who's running the show. He says, uh, we make it a habit to say if the master wills it and we're still alive, we'll do this or that. Guys, God himself is moving the universe toward an end destination of his own designing. And we're part of that, but we are part of a like 10,000 foot view, big plan that God is carrying out. And who knows if it is going to make God's plan work, if you move to Cappadocia to sell your pottery. And I think this gets real for us in a couple of ways, because I don't know about you, but I'm a planner. I think we all are on some level or another. We're planners. Um, That's a, you know, a skill that we're taught. It's a skill that's encouraged. And, And so I think this text is really trying to protect one kind of person from discouragement and another kind of person from disappointment. Um, And I want to dig into that for a little bit, because whether or not you're a traveling merchant, you made a plan. And if you're in the autumn years of your life, if if you're in the back nine of your life, you made plans for your family and your wealth and what you would do and how your kids would behave as adults and what it would be like to have grandkids that may or may not be coming to fruition. You made plans for these kinds of trips and that, and this is how it would look, and we're gonna be so happy, and then something happens along the way when the plan didn't come true. 
The sickness was not on the plan. The death was not on the plan. The family dysfunction was not on the plan. My kids leaving town and moving to California was not part of the plan. Us being in a standoff and being estranged from this one of my, chi- this one of my child or this grandchild of mine was not part of the plan. The addiction my child is experiencing was not part of the plan. Uh, the, the way it's working, and so the plan gets disappointing, the plan gets frustrating, the plan is ultimately discouraging. And the thing that I want to say to you in your kind of later years of your life is that God himself is working out a plan. And so if the plan that you built hasn't come to fruition, that's not entirely your fault. Because in your later years, you can be filled with regrets. If I'd only done this, if I'd only done this, if we'd had this conversation, if we had moved here, if I had prioritized this, that, or the other. And I think this text is trying to set you free from that in your later years, that if the plan hasn't worked out, if things haven't gone according to plan, it's not ultimately your fault. It's not because you screwed up. It's not because of this, that, or the other. It's because God had something else in mind. And, And here is the crazy thing. The sovereignty of God in the universe means that when we get to heaven, No matter what crappy stuff has happened to us, we will look at our lives and we will say to God, I would do it the exact same way that you did it. Cancer and disappointment and sickness and death, all of it. I would do it the same exact way. Doesn't matter what I feel, doesn't matter what I see, my hope will always be your promises to me. I think that's trying to protect those of us in the back nine of our lives and the autumn years of our lives from being totally discouraged that the, the plan hasn't worked out. I think for those of us in the front nine of our lives, uh, those of us who are millennials, this passage is also trying to protect us from disappointment. Uh, because I don't know about you, but you and I were raised on Sesame Street and Barney and shows that told us you can be anything that you want. And if you work hard, and if you do the right things, and if you go to college, and you marry the right person, and you follow the right rules, and this, this, and this, if you grew up in the church, it's way more intense, okay? Uh, But the point stands that by the time you hit your mid-20s, you're going to have the house you want, the car you want, the money you want, the job you want, this, this, and this. And guys, like, we know way too many, like, 24, 25-year-olds in the depths of a quarter-life crisis because they went to school, they got the degree, and there's no job. So they can't make the money, so they can't have the house, so they can't have the car, and they have friends that have the house and have the car and have this and have that, and here I am stuck. I stuck to the plan. I did the right thing. I I, I tried to follow the rules, and now I'm disappointed because this plan didn't work. I think this text is kind of trying to set us free because millennials especially are that person that says, I'm going to go to such and such a town and make a whole bunch of money. I'm going to go to this college, I'm going to get this job, and this is what my life's going to look like by 25. I'm going to have the family, I'm going to have this, I'm going to have that, and I just don't. And then what happens? And I think the solution for both the the discouraged person in their later years and the disappointed person in their earlier years is found in these last two verses, where James says, as it is, you're full of your grandiose selves. All such vaunting, self-importance is evil. Side note, planning ambitious, arrogant plans, James says, oh yeah, that is vaunting self-importance. I use a planner. It's called the passion planner. And it's like every week, what's your goal? Every day, what's your goal? Every month, what's the goal? What's your quarterly goals? What's the goals for this year? And I'm supposed to like mind map it and goals, 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 and strategies and blah, 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 blah. And I'm supposed to meet those things. But James says, planning 
apart from the spirit of God and without leaving some margin for him is vaunting self-importance. And what he says is the person in their later years who is so obsessed with the plan having fallen apart and the person in their younger years is so obsessed with their plan having coming to fruition yet that we forget to do the right and good thing in front of us. And James says, in fact, if you know the right thing to do and don't do it, that for you is evil. Do you know what's not evil? That your plan to have a certain kind of job at 25 hasn't come about. What's not evil is that in your latter years, the way that your family is, is functioning, that's not the, most, the biggest evil on your radar. The biggest evil is that you can be so distracted by these things that you stop doing the right thing and the good thing that God has put right in front of you. Let me, let me reveal the hand. 98% of following Jesus is simply this, doing the right thing and the good thing that's right in front of you in the power and presence of Jesus and for his glory. That's it. That's it. This is why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all of it will be added to you. This is where it gets simple. Do the next thing that's right in front of you in the power and presence of Jesus. That's basically the ball game. That's eight and a half of the nine innings. But James says, when we obsess about our plans and when we obsess about talking and judging other people that we're engaging in arrogance, the last thing that he has to say is that we engage in arrogance by hoarding our wealth. The logical connection from 4, 13 to 17 and 5, 1 to 6 being that the merchant said, we're going to go off to the city and make a ton of money. And so he's like, by the way, let me tell you about money. James is a circular thinker. So Paul in his letters in the New Testament goes major point A, outline, one, two, three. Major point B, one, two, three. Major point C, one, two, three. Um, James is a little more Eastern in his thinking, so he circles. So he talks about wisdom and money and speaking and doing good works and wisdom and money and speaking and doing good works and wisdom and money and speaking and do good works. So he's finally deciding to put down the money thing. He's finally saying, let's take a pause. And I'm not going to camp here because we're going to do six weeks on money in September and October. By the way, great time to go on vacation um, if you want. Um, but this is what he says. Guys, this is like, I've never, like scripture gets real. And James is about to do a mic job. He says, and by the way, a final word to your arrogant rich. I'm going to leave the money thing away, James is saying. He says, take some lessons and lament. You'll need buckets for the tears when the crash comes upon you. Your money is corrupt and your fine clothes stink. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. You thought you were piling up wealth. What you piled up is judgment. It just keeps going. Like he doesn't stop. He's just, he says, all the workers you've exploited and cheated cry out for judgment. The groans of these workers you used and abused are, roar, are a roar in the ears of the master avenger. Master avenger, not the incredible Hulk or like Hawkeye, Jesus. He says, you've looted the earth and lived it up. Check this out. He says, but all you'll have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. Yeah. Jesus loves me, this I know. You know what I'm saying? In fact, what you've done is condemn and murder and per condemn and murder perfectly good persons who stand there and take it. I love that line, you'll need buckets for the tears when the crash comes. It's like, you got all that money, here's what you need to do, buy some buckets, because when the judgment comes, you're gonna need a lot of buckets to hold the tears. That's what you should use your money for. Listen, the Bible has no problem with money. God has no problem with money. My coach in Detroit works for a guy who's like, we have two full-time people called the house staff rich. Like we have the 40 hour a week, like housekeeper and we have the 40 hour a week groundskeeper. I mean, money. Do you know what I'm, I mean? It's just unreal. It's unbelievable. 
but he gives it away. He lives like on half a salary. He gives most of it away what Jesus is doing. And God has no problem with, with, with wealth. In fact, 1 Corinthians, and we'll get into this, says that we, we are made to prosper so that we would give more. You give as you prosper. The Bible has a problem with money when it's not invested in eternal things. The, the Bible has a problem with money when it is sought after out of selfish ambition and gain. And it really has a problem when we seek after money at the expense of the innocent. So there's this really interesting verse, all the workers you've exploited and cheated cry out for judgment. Now this is a problem because all of the clothes that you and I were wearing, are wearing right now were like sewn together by some Chinese boy in a sweatshop with his teeth. And he was paid like 10 cents. All right, good boy, we'll see you tomorrow. So I mean, there's an ethical problem that we all kind of need to address here. But in the shorter term, what James is trying to do is dethrone money in our hearts. He's trying to get money out of our hearts and show us that unless it's invested in eternal purposes, it's ultimately useless. Here's actually the interesting thing that I realized. All money is eternal. Money always has eternal value. It just depends on whether or not money is going to be used to your eternal judgment or your eternal um, reward. So we're not going to camp out on that too long because we're going to be there for six weeks, but what James wants us to do is invest into eternal causes and purposes, or at least to have some mindfulness of what money means for us in the long run. So we need to talk a little bit now about how, how we be humble, because James earlier has said that we need to be in submission to God, that we need to refrain from hoarding our wealth, from talking, from making plans. Can I tell you what's terrifying about this? Like 90% of my week is talking about my plans and my money. What are we going to do tonight? Where are we going to go for dinner? Can you believe this person did this crazy thing? What are we doing tomorrow? What about this? This other person did this other crazy thing. On and on and on and on and on. Right? This is our lives. I mean, it's not just an abstract thing. Our lives are money and plans and talking. And so what does it look like for us to have humility when it comes to our ambition and our wealth and our plans and the way we talk to one another? Listen to what Lewis says here. C.S. Lewis is super helpful. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seems a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. That's what humility is. He says he will not be thinking about humility. In fact, he won't be thinking about himself at all. Humility, C.S. Lewis says, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It is a state of living in which you and yourself come to your mind less often. It is not self-deprecation. Uh, it is not making sure everybody knows how unnecessary you are. It is not like a false humility that kind of talks about, well, I, some, Christians do this all the time. Well, it's just Jesus, man. It's not me. It's just Jesus. Would you just shut up? I, I appreciate the desire to glory. I appreciate the desire to point somebody else than you, but there's eventually a point where it's like, no, 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 that it, we're drawing more attention to ourselves than not. He says, to be humble, to avoid this, it, this trap of wealth and plans and these kinds of things require humility. 
And so it's not putting yourself down, it's not self-deprecating. True humility is just that you come to your mind less, which means that humility is often in scripture tied to being a servant. Because if I'm not thinking, if I'm not thinking about myself, there's some brain bandwidth to use up, which is probably gonna get used up by treating others more important than me. Serving is going to become the concrete form of humility because humility says it's not about me, it's about what I can do for other people. And so we don't think about ourselves as often as we're thinking about how I can help John and come alongside him and meet his needs and care for him. Humility is tied to serving. And by the way, I've not found anywhere in scripture where my job is to humble you. Nowhere does scripture command me to humble Anthony. Does not, there's no humble one another in the New Testament. Yes, there's two subjects of the verb humble, me and God. I can humble myself and God humbles me. It is not my job to humble you. Now, I can exhort you and challenge you and, and, and encourage you and call you out, which will produce humility, but I am never called to put you in your place. I'm never called to press you down. I'm never called to make sure that you don't get the big head. I'm allowed to call you out for your pride, but I never say, hey, you're not being humble. I never, it's never my job to humble you because if I'm humbling you, what I'm actually doing is humiliating you. It's God's job. It's God's job to humble me, and it's my job to humble myself before him. Ultimately, the reason that we have to go to war with our pride, even in these mundane things, see, this is the problem with James, is it's not these like special circumstances. It's how I talk about people. It's how I handle my money, and it's how I make my plans. It's the reason we have to go to war with our pride in these things is because it limits our ability and perverts our ability to know who God is. Look at this, this is, this is where C.S. Lewis does the mic drop. He says, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Prideful people are small-minded people because they don't look up. They're not stretched. Prideful people are controlling people because they don't look up and see who's actually running the show. Prideful people are ungrateful people because they don't look up and see who it is that's providing everything. Prideful people are unkind people because they don't look up to see who has been kind to them first. Prideful people are unloving people because they don't know who first loved them. Prideful people are mean-spirited people because they don't know the patience of the one above them. Prideful people are needy people because they don't know that they can be satisfied in the one above them. And so we go to war. We go to war and we look up. Let's pray. Father, we want to look up tonight. We want to see you working in our lives. And so at this table and through this singing, Father, remind us of who we are and humble us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.